welcome of worship. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. It's good to be here on a Mother's Day, is it not? That was a little weak from the right-hand side. I heard the left-hand side, but uh, it is good to be with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and find your place in Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning. We're going to dismiss our children's to children's church or kids' church at this time. And if you have one that's three years through third grade and want to send them out, you can do so by putting them at the end of the line there. You're going to follow Allie and as she runs out. But uh, grateful for moms today, grateful for uh, my wife who's at home recovering from a surgery that she had this week. She's doing well, uh, but uh, hormonally, a little imbalance there, which is to be expected. So she gets fatigued really easy, so she's at home uh, still, and so I uh, want to continue to pray for her. Thank you so much for many of you who've been obviously praying and, and sending cards, notes, messages, dinners. Um, man, we got more food in our house than we know what to do with right now. So if you don't have lunch plans today, you can come to the Taylor house. We've got some leftovers. And if you don't mind eating pasta and, uh, and fruit and uh, chicken and, and things like that. So uh, you're welcome to come to our house and uh, eat with us today. Grateful for my mom who uh, is back in Arkansas. She also had surgery about 10 days ago. And so Giving kind of keeping up with her and her rotator cuff surgery, but uh, grateful for moms and, and all that they, they do for us. It's good to honor. And the Bible tells us to honor our fathers and our mothers. And it comes with a promise that if we'll do that, not just on Mother's Day, but it's, it's our life, it's the, the heartbeat that we have to honor our parents, to lift them up and to obey them, then God promises to give us a little bit longer life. And so if some of you are, are uh, in need of that, Maybe you could just start honoring your mom and, and help out. I'm joking with that just a, a, a little bit. Nehemiah chapter 6, we're going to continue in our study working, working uh, verse by verse through this great book. And really the idea is just we want to do things God's way. We spent last year walking through the book of Judges and, and there through the story of the Judges and the people of God, we saw that they were doing things their own way and all the troubles that were created as a result. And so you come to Nehemiah as well as uh, Ezra, and they are contemporaries. Ezra is a little bit before Nehemiah, but they work together as we will see as we move to chapter 8 in a couple weeks. But uh, as we move to this era... This this post-exile period of the, the history of Judah, we see that the people of God returned to God and began to do things the way they should have been doing the whole time. They wanted to live God's way. And in large part, this came from the leadership of men like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah as they led, led the people back to faithfulness, back to uh, the Word of God and to prayer and to worship of God. And so this morning... We're going to continue working through this book here in chapter 6, and I want to begin talking about my favorite Western actor. And he's not a hero, or he's not popular, he's not a, a figure that is someone we celebrate because he was a Western actor. He, we, we celebrate him, we know him because he was a great hero in the World War II. I'm speaking about Audie Murphy. If you know anything about the life of Audie Murphy, Audie, Audie Murphy was known to be just too small. Everything about him was just too small. He was a small man in stature. Uh, he, 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 he was poor, and all the things were working against him. But he was a great man. Born in Hunt County, Texas on June 20th, 1925, and raised on a sharecropper's farm, along with his other ten brothers and, and sisters. Audie's upbringing was anything but easy. Life was very difficult in East Texas for the Murphy family. His father Emmett fell short, greatly short on his parental responsibilities and eventually abandoned the entire family. 
One year after his father left, his mother passed away with an illness, and Murphy was only 16 years old when that took place. He did everything he could to hold his family together. He did everything he could to feed and provide for his siblings, but eventually each one of his brothers and sisters either went to an orphanage or went to live with relatives. And so seeking an escape from that life as, as well as a way to provide for his, his brothers and sisters to get out of the orphanage and to have something, in 1942, he looked to the Marines. As you know, war had just been declared, and like so many other young men, Murphy lied about his age in his attempt to enlist. But it was not his age that kept him out of the Marines. It was his size. Not tall enough to meet the minimum requirements, he moved from the Marines and tried to enlist in the paratroopers. The paratroopers turned him down. But again, he went on. He went to the Army Infantry, and there he was accepted. And so after basic training, Murphy was assigned to the 15th Regiment, the 3rd Infantry Division, stationed in North Africa, which was preparing to invade Sicily. Everyone doubted him because of his small stature. Everyone doubted him because of his lack of experience and his upbringing. But it was in North Africa, 1943, as he saw his first combat experience, that the people around him began to see that he really did have a knack for this battle stuff, these techniques, these, uh, this battle that he was engaged in. And so there he began to show that he had a proficient marksmanship. He was a highly skilled soldier. He understood the techniques of small unit action. And so after the North African campaign, he landed at Salerno to fight in the Voltuno River campaign and then on to Anzio to be part of the Allied force that fought its way all the way to Rome. Throughout all of these campaigns, Murphy's skills earned him advancements in rank because, in large part, many of his superiors were either being transferred out of that division or being wounded in battle or even being killed. So after the capture of Rome, Murphy earned his first decoration of gallantry. Shortly thereafter, his unit was withdrawn from Italy to train for Operation Anvil Dragoon, the invasion that was going to take place in southern France. During seven weeks of fighting there in southern France, they were successful in their campaign. But in that campaign, his division suffered 4,500 casualties. But Murphy himself became one of the most decorated men in his company. And yet that was still not his best or biggest test to come. It was yet to come. In January 26, 1945, near the village of Holtzweer, and I hope I'm saying these, these European names correctly. Uh, my German and Polish and, and Italian is not good at all. Definitely not French, and I took that in high school. But near this village of Holtzweer in eastern France, Lieutenant Murphy's forward positions came under fierce attack by the Germans. And against the onslaught of six panzer tanks and 250 instrument, Murphy ordered his men to fall back to better their defenses. And so alone, he mounted an abandoned burning tank destroyer. And with only a single machine gun, he contested the the enemy's advance. Wounded in the leg during the heavy fire, Murphy remained there for nearly an hour, repelling the attack of German soldiers on three different sides and single-handedly killing 50 of them. His courageous performance stalled the German advance and allowed him to lead his man in a counterattack, which ultimately drove the enemy from Holtzweer. For this, Murphy was awarded the Medal of Honor, which is the nation, as you know, the nation's highest honor for gallantry. By the end of the war, 
Murphy had contracted malaria, witnessed the deaths of hundreds and hundreds of his friends and fellow soldiers. He had killed himself 240 German soldiers, and he had been wounded three times, as well as becoming the nation's most decorated soldier, earning an unparalleled 28 medals, including three from France and one from Belgium. And yet in, 19, in May of 1945, he had not yet hit his 21st birthday. No one in the Marines, no one in the Army paratroopers, no one in the Army's infantry division ever thought Audie Murphy would amount to much in the military, much less become the highest decorated officer in history. And yet, not only did he survive in the military, during his time in World War II, Audie Murphy thrived in the military. In June 1945, Murphy returned home from Europe a hero and was greeted with parades and elaborate banquets. You'll see there on the screen the, the picture of the cover of Life magazine. In July 16th, 1945, that issue, they put Audie Murphy because he was the Medal of Honor recipient on the cover of their magazine. He was a hero in our nation. And yet he came from such small stock in the eyes of most people. So what was it that enabled him to press on in the face of such great opposition? I believe, just like Winston Churchill, he possessed a ferocious courage. He possessed a never-given attitude. And so his life reminds us that circumstances don't create the man. Circumstances only reveal the man's character. So, so here we find Audie Murphy and Winston Churchill and Nehemiah as well as men who faced op opposition in, in ter terrible odds that were not in their favor. And rather than cutting and running, rather than giving in, rather than throwing in the towel, that revealed within them the character that was always there to begin with. Nehemiah was this type of hero, this type of hero, or uh, this type of leader. Last week I shared with you just kind of the, the context of what's going on here in this book where we see so many different players on so many different sides. And so during Nehemiah's tenure as governor there in Judah, Jerusalem was a mixture of all kinds of people. There, there was self-interest, there was conspiracy, there was spiritual devotion of some, there was feigned religiosity on, of others, there was faith, there was parochialism, all of these things. There were people who were devoted to the work of God and the rebuilding of this wall. And yet, at the same time, as we're going to see in this passage this morning, there were people working against him from the inside. And with the realization that the wall was nearing completion, despite all of their attempts, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem began to focus their intimidation on not the populace anymore. Now they're seeking to focus their intimidation upon the leader. They tried to lure Nehemiah away from Jerusalem so to murder him or to uh, charge him with some sort of sedition. They hired prophets to trap him, to discredit him. And yet Nehemiah held to the task. Last week we saw where Nehemiah responded four, five different times by saying this, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I cannot come down. His face was to the grindstone. He was dedicated to the Lord and dedicated to the Lord's work. He never gave in. Instead, he courageously pressed on in the work that God had called him to do. And so this morning, I want to continue talking about what it means to press on in the work of God. Because Nehemiah shows us how to press on in the work regardless of circumstances. It's easy to quit. So many people in this world are quitters. When the going gets tough, when the kitchen gets hot, rather than continuing to press on, rather than continuing to, to be steadfast in their commitment to the job, they will cut and run. Why? It's because it's easy 
And the ditches of life are full of great ideas. The ditches are full of callings that were thrown out when the things of life became too hard. I hope that's not true of your life. It's easy to see the difficulty and become a pessimist. Winston Churchill said, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, but an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Truth is, life is tough. Life is difficult. This is the reality of the life that we live in. Therefore, the way to be successful, the way to win, the way to finish the work that God has given us to do is simply to plod on through the muck and the mire, to put one step in front of the other, to pick yourselves up when you fall down and get back to the work. We're looking this last week, this week, and this next Sunday, and here in chapters 6 and 7, and we're looking how Nehemiah pressed on through three different challenges of the work. Last week, we saw him persevering in the face of overt opposition as the, as the enemies came against him strongly out in the open. This morning, we're going to see him persevering in the face of covert opposition. In the face of covert opposition. Chapter 6 opens with an encouraging update on the progress of the wall. There, Nehemiah tells us that, that the work has progressing, it's moving along, that the breaches in the wall have now been closed in. It's much different than what we saw in chapter 4, verse 7, where there were still some gaps in the wall. Now the wall is completed. The only thing left to do is to install the gates and the doors. And so this is a great uh, statement of progress. This is a great update of what has taken place thus far. So Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the rest of Nehemiah's enemies are beginning to realize that their window of opportunity is closing. But it's still not too late for them to, to bring Nehemiah down. It's not too late for them to stop the work. And so they change tactics. They come after the governor personally. First, they devised a plan to trap or to, to kidnap Nehemiah, they, we saw this plot to kidnap him and possibly murder him last week in verses 1 through 4. And when that didn't work, they came up with a plot to malign his character and his intentions there in verses 5 through 9. And so four different times, uh, the, the men send this messenger saying, hey, come down and meet with us. And each time, Nehemiah responds, I cannot come down. I cannot leave this work. It is a great work. So on the fifth time, they send an open letter. I joked last week, this is the first ever Facebook rant. They send this open letter to defame and, and to cast doubt upon his leadership to the open public. And yet, it doesn't. It doesn't swerve him or sway him one bit. He continues to put one foot in front of the other and do the work. And so they move from overt opposition now to a covert opposition. So I want you to see this in two, two, uh, two phases here. First of all, we see the plot to intimidate. There's a plot to intimidate Nehemiah and his leaders. Look there in verse 10. The Bible says, now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go to, into the temple and, and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make 
me afraid. Right here we see this plot to intimidate. Verse 9, if we were to back up there, it ends with Nehemiah asking God to strengthen his hands. And that adds context to what we see here in verse 10 as the story continues with Shemaiah. Nehemiah's troubles were increasing and becoming more alarming. And so it seems that Nehemiah went to the house of a man he would have trusted, a man that he could confide in. This was probably most likely a friend of Nehemiah. It seems that Shemaiah was a prophet. He was somebody that the people of God, there in Jerusalem, revered and respected. It was somebody that they saw as, as a one who spoke on behalf of God, that they could go to him and learn the counsel of God, learn the word of God, learn what God was saying and, and proclaiming over their lives. This would have been a man that Nehemiah would have trusted deeply. And so he had every reason to feel safe with this professed man of God. Possibly he came to this man to share his problems and to be assured of this man's support during such an intense opposition. I mean, when you're under the gun, when you're facing the fire, firing squad, when you're leading in this type of way, you've got all of these enemies from every, every direction around you. The, the stress level, the anxiety level, all of the things pressuring in on him. You can understand why Nehemiah would want to go and talk with a spiritual counselor. Sometimes this happens in your life. Life begins to press in. And so you you come, you say, Pastor, I just need to share with you. I need to talk with you. I need to pray with you. And so you understand what will be going on in Nehemiah's life. And so he trusts this man. He he goes to his home and he finds him confined within his own home. Now the Bible here uh, gives us an ambiguous phrase. We don't really know what it means to be confined to his home. Was he confined by the others? Did they put him in house arrest? Was he confined by something he did to himself? And so the ambiguity of this phrase leads us to ask some questions. It could mean that he had confined himself to his home pretending he too was afraid of these enemies of Nehemiah. Or it could be that he had shut himself in as a symbolic act to indicate that his own life was in danger and thus to suggest that both he and Nehemiah must flee to the temple. And so this would have created a a sense of connection between he and Nehemiah because they're both allegedly on the run. They're both allegedly facing enemies. They're both allegedly facing the gun. So what we see here is Nehemiah quickly understood that this was nothing more than a sham. Shemaiah's deception was another attempt to destroy Nehemiah's character and to stop the rebuilding of the wall by painting him as nothing more than a scared leader and also making him a religious transgressor. Nehemiah says, how how should a man like I run? Why should I run? What would it be said of me as the governor of this this province, of this territory, if I was to run? What What kind of testimony would that be? Much less the fact that if I entered the temple... I'm putting myself in danger of death itself because the Word of God tells me that I'm not a priest, therefore I don't belong in the inner parts of the temple. So he realized that Sambalat and Tobiah had hired this man of God. How was Nehemiah able to see through this scheme? That's a question that when you're studying this passage of Scripture ought to come to mind. What was it that led Nehemiah to recognize that this was a scheme and this was not something that was being said, thus saith the Lord? Here are two things that I, I believe we learn from this or something that we should glean from this as, as ways for us to discern what to do 
when facing opposition. First of all, we see that he was protected through knowledge of Scripture. It was Nehemiah's knowledge of Scripture that helped him discern what was right and what was wrong. He quickly recognized that God did not send Shemaiah through his knowledge of Scripture. You see, Nehemiah knew the Pentateuch. He knew the first five books of the Bible. And he knew that the Word of God says that only priests can go into the temple. And only at appointed times. And so we ask here, what man such as I could go into the temple and and live there in verse 11? Non-priests were not allowed into the temple. Priests were allowed to go in the temple only on certain times. And so if someone who was not a priest and who didn't go in at certain times, they would be killed according to Numbers chapter 18, verse 7. And so he knew that if he tried to enter the temple, the Lord might break out against him. And so this was one way he knew God had not sent Shemaiah to him. The prophet counseled him to do something that was expressly forbidden by the word of God. This morning, let me just share this with you. If someone ever counsels you, instructs you, encourages you, challenges you to do something that the Bible strictly tells you not to do, don't do it. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what degrees they have. It doesn't matter what following they have. If someone tells you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, don't do it. You see, even in marriage, as Southern Baptists, as evangelicals, as people of the Bible, those who believe the Word of God is authoritative over every aspect of our life. In the context of marriage, we believe the Bible clearly teaches that a wife is to be submissive to the headship and lordship, I shouldn't say lordship, headship and, and leadership of her husband. But the Bible t- clearly tells us that if your husband, though you're to follow his leadership, if he leads you or tells you to do something contrary to the Word of God, you have a greater allegiance to God and His Word than you do your husband. So anyone who tells us or leads us to do something contrary to the Bible is something that we should not and never do. Nehemiah heard what the prophet said, and he responded to it on the basis of what the Bible teaches And that's how we should always respond to things in our life. We should respond on the basis of what God's Word says. It is the authority for our lives. Today we live in a culture. Our culture, many times we today want to say there are cultures so much different than than past cultures. And yes, if we just went back a few decades, our culture is much different than that. We're moving headlong into secularism. But our culture, you know, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. If you were to go back to the Roman Empire, other times, eras in history, we would see gross immorality, gross d- divorcing from faith to, and, and from the Bible, and we're seeing that in our culture today. And so in our culture, we're living in a day that is actively working to erode the teachings of Scripture from everything around us. We've seen overt opposition to the Bible, such as lawsuits that are being filed against government bodies and schools and everything they can do to remove monuments and prayer and and reading the Bible, everything to do with Christianity. Our culture is trying to rip it out from underneath us. But I wonder this morning, because we do see that, do we see the covert opposition against our faith? Do we see how culture in America today and culture in Western civilization today is taking the truth of the Word of God and just tweaking it a little bit, just twisting it just a tad? Or they may not uh, negate or they may not speak against the uh, big stuff of the Bible or the uh, blatant things in the Bible, but they'll just take a little bit of truth and twist it just a, a tad. Isn't that what the enemy did to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? 
He never came in and said, God doesn't exist. He never came in and says, you shouldn't talk to God. He didn't come in and say, you shouldn't pray. He didn't come in and say, you shouldn't have any fellowship with this God or you can't trust this God. He came in and just asked a little question and just slightly just began to put a thought into their mind of doubt. Covertly opposing God and the Word of God and the relationship that they had with God. And so today we see uh, this ongoing subtle erosion to our biblical convictions. Our culture twists the truth that, that God is loving and accepting of all people and declares that because God is love, He loves and accepts lifestyles that are forbidden in Scripture. Who doesn't disagree or who, who disagrees with the fact that the Bible says God is love? No one in here would say that. The Bible clearly says that God is love. For God so loved the world, He's acted in and salvation toward us with a heart full of love. God is a love of God, but what our culture wants to do, and this is creeping into the church more and more and more, is because we believe that God is love, and we want people to believe that God is love. What's happening is the enemy is covertly behind the scenes leading our churches to believe that because God is love, he's no longer just. And so we say God will forgive all sin. God will look past all sins. He will redeem us from all sins. But we want to say that God basically is a universalist that because of what Jesus did on the cross, everybody's kind of swept into this thing called salvation. But that is not true. There has to be an element of faith. And there also has to be an element of dealing with sin. We've got to deal with our own sin. Yeah, we deal it with Christ on the cross. But it has to be something that we're repenting of. And so Jesus and what he did on the cross for us is something that he did to satisfy the justice of God in the love of God. So we must never divorce the two from one another. God is love, but he is also just. He will not look past our sin. He cannot look past our sin. His holiness demands that our sin be dealt with. So what we're seeing today in the culture of America, in the culture of the American church, is this emphasis on the love of God devoid of an emphasis on the justice of God. You can't have the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ being one through the blood shed on the, on the cross if there isn't also an emphasis on justice. Otherwise, why did Jesus ever have to go to the cross? He could have just b- broadly said, you are all forgiven. He would, God the Father would be a sadist if he sent his son to the cross to suffer in the way that he did if it wasn't necessary for salvation. Do you see the, 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 the logic there and, and how the things of the Bible's clear teaching is being twisted in our culture today? I'm seeing it so much in the church. There's all this conversation. I don't know how much you pay attention. You probably don't pay attention as, as much as, as some of us do because that's like Steve and I live in this world of, uh, of religious work. And so we read articles, we read stories. We're reading uh, what people were saying and, and, and all of these things. And so I don't know if you're aware of but there is something very strong in our culture today that's covertly opposing the very clear teaching of Scripture. We need to keep our eyes open and do and believe what the Bible says. I've spent way too much time there. We need to move on. Otherwise, we'll never... Oh, good. night, 10.02 already. All right. He was strengthened through his knowledge of Scripture. Secondly... He was protected through his knowledge of Scripture. Secondly, he was strengthened through prayer. Again, we see that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. We've seen it all, all throughout these chapters thus far. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. He spent a lot of time in fellowship and, and communication with the Lord. Clarence Bauman, I've shared this quote with you before, says, The purpose of prayer is not to inform God of our needs, but it's, invi- it's to invite him to rule our lives. 
That's what Nehemiah is doing is he's praying, is he's seeking the Lord. He's saying, Lord, I'm not, I'm not my leader. You're my leader. And so I invite you to rule over my life. And so God was sitting on the throne in Nehemiah's life. His constant fellowship with the Lord made him sensitive to the Lord's voice. Did you know that God is constantly speaking to his children? Sometimes we pray prayers like this. Lord, I pray that you'd speak, us, speak to us today. That's a prayer we don't have to pray. He's always speaking to you. The prayer we should be praying is this, Lord, give me ears to hear. You remember, if you go to the first couple chapters of Revelation, what is he saying? Give e- He's speaking to the church, Ephesus and all those churches. He says, give ears to us, that we may have ears to hear and a heart to listen, a mind to receive. That's the prayer we ought to be praying to the Lord. God, help us to hear your voice. Make us sensitive to what you're saying, the direction that you're giving us. See, anytime we're led astray, it's not because God has failed to warn us. It's simply because we've chosen not to listen. We've chosen not to heed his word, and we've chosen not to listen to the still, small voice that is speaking so clearly within our lives. Nehemiah's prayer life was deep and rich, and his prayer in verse 14 14 exemplifies this, where he says, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, Oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noah died, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. See, he wanted what God wanted. He wanted mercy for those who repented of sin and trusted in God, but he also desired justice for sin and those who stood against God. These were no friends of God. Thus he prayed no friendly prayer for them. Shemaiah's intimidation failed at this point. Next we see not only a plot to intimidate, but a plot to undermine. Look at verse 15. Nehemiah says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. Monumental work right here. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ra. And his son Jehu Hanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. I'm so grateful we don't name our kids like this anymore. It's been a long time since I took Hebrew, and sometimes it's hard to pronounce the words. Verse 19, also they spoke his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. There's a plot to undermine that's taking place here. As we know, Nehemiah and the Jews began this work. And Nehemiah tells us here in verse 15 that in 52 days they completed the work. That means that around July or August, all the way to September or October, in just a couple of months, they rebuilt the wall. It only took 52 days. Here's a statement I want us to think about this morning real quickly, and then we're going to move on. Never underestimate what you you can accomplish when God has called you to a work. Never underestimate what you can do. And it's not you doing it, because God is doing the work here, as we see in the next verse. See, the reasons we don't see miraculous work like this is simply because we as God's people are either not doing them or we don't persevere in them. We either never start the work or we quit before it's finished. God wants to do something miraculous in and through our lives. Uh, some, of, uh, some of our church may be sweating bullets right now, and, and there are times when I kind of sweat bullets as well. As we move toward a renovation and we look at what cost, projected cost might be, it makes you uncomfortable to even think about that. But just remember, 
as long as each one of us are faithful to do what God has called us to do as a family, God will bring it all to completion. If we're following his leadership, we've never seen in Scripture when the people of God faithfully followed God that the work failed to be accomplished. Not one single time. Who would have thought Noah could build a giant boat when he had never even heard of rain, never been around a body of water that could hold a boat like that, and using such primitive tools as he did? And if you've seen that movie, um, that's a comedy, it, it probably wasn't like that necessarily. But um, I, even, I was going to say the name of the book, but I, or the movie, but I forgot the name of it all of a sudden. But who could have imagined that the people of God could do something so miraculous as that. It was simply the, the power and the activity of God in all of these people's lives throughout the Scripture. It's the same here with Nehemiah. And so we see this amazing thing in verse 16. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem. They perceive that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They realized that Nehemiah didn't do this. God did this. Everyone recognized that. Unfortunately, their fear was not coupled with repentance and faith. You see, they still sought to obstruct his activity, and so they continued by undermining Nehemiah's leadership. What's going on here? Well, Nehemiah goes on to tell us that many of Judah's nobility were in some form or fashion bound to Tobiah, whether it's through marriage or it's through some sort of business agreement. So their lust for money and their low view of Scripture resulted in a greater commitment to the Lord's enemies than they had in the Lord's servant. They were more closely tied to Sembalat and Tobiah and Geshem and other people like that than they were to Nehemiah, the man God had sent and was doing a miraculous work. And their relationships provided Tobiah with all the intel that he needed to continue to be a thorn in the side of Nehemiah and this work. These relationships gave him an upper hand in this ongoing chess match that they were playing. And so it's here that we might expect Nehemiah to give up. It's here that we might think Nehemiah would throw in the towel and return to Susa. It's here that we might think that Nehemiah, like so many people today, would compromise in his convictional beliefs. But what does Nehemiah do? He puts one foot in front of the other. He plods on. He presses in, even in the face of overt and covert opposition. So what do we learn from this? Let me give you two things or two lessons that we learn from this this morning. First of all, the enemy is subtle. The enemy is subtle. Behind these attacks on God's servant, there stands a far more sinister enemy than Sanballat. There's someone stronger and greater than Tobiah. There's someone more devious than Geshem and any of the other enemies. We have an enemy this morning. We need to realize that. We have an enemy, and his name is Lucifer. His name is Satan. His name is the devil. These men here in the Scriptures are merely pawns in this manipulative campaign to subvert God's work. See, this morning, we must never forget what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have an enemy, and it's not the person sitting next to you. It's not the person that you work with at your job. It's not the people in our communities, not the people in our culture. We have an enemy that we're facing, and his name is Satan. He doesn't many times come at us with a full frontal attack. That doesn't mean he won't, but most of the time he doesn't. 
Instead, what he does is he subtly and deceptively twists the truth. He casts doubt upon the word of God. He casts doubt upon the calling of God upon your life. And this is exactly what he's been doing all throughout Scripture from the very beginning. He comes there to the garden. He begins to speak with Eve. And he just whispers the question, did God really say? And that put a thought there. That rather than taking that thought captive to the obedience of Christ, as the New Testament would call us to do, Eve, and I believe Adam as well, began to dwell on that, think through that, and it led them to make a decision where they disobeyed God, plunging themselves and all of humanity into fallenness. The enemy is subtle. Second thing I want us to see here that we learn is the Lord is sufficient. We have a subtle enemy. He's a dangerous enemy. We have a sufficient Lord. See, in these first six chapters, we have witnessed one adversity after another for Nehemiah. Every single day, it seems like Nehemiah wakes up, there's a new adversity. There's a new thing that he's got to tackle. There's a setback in in the progress. And yet, in time after time, in situation after situation, God comes through for Nehemiah. We see his sufficiency. This morning, I don't know what you're dealing with. I know some of the stories that's going on in your life and in your family. I don't know every detail. Some, you may tell me some aspect of it, but you may not give me the full ramification. But I know someone who knows everything that's going on in your life. He knows what suffering you're dealing with. He knows what struggles you have. He knows what temptations are facing you. He knows all of that. And I can tell you with all certainty, based upon the authority of God's word, that God is sufficient. God is sufficient. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You may not know how to pay the bills this week because already in this early month, you've got more month than paycheck. He owns it all. If you'll do things God's way, God will come through for you every single time. See, it's when we begin to rethink his process. It's when we begin to say, Lord, I think your schedule's a little off. I'm going to tweak it a little bit. That's when we mess things up. We need to remember this morning that we serve a sufficient God, whatever the suffering, it is always accompanied by sufficient strength. Yes, we have a great enemy, but we have an even greater advocate. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you, especially our younger folks in here, have never heard of Audie Murphy. Some of you, like me, I'm the grandpa, I guess, because I love old westerns. And I grew up with Audie Murphy. I told you he's my, he's my favorite. And if you watch his movies, you'll think, this is terrible B-rated westerns. But I just love his quirkiness. I love the fact that he's raw in his acting. But what I love about Audie Murphy more than anything is that he was a hero to begin with. He's a man of courage. He's a man of strength. He's a man that if you looked at him, you, you didn't see much. He was small in stature. People that were around him, that's all they could see there at the beginning. They couldn't see his heart. They expected him to wash out. They thought that he would either be killed quickly or desert when he hit the battlefield. But instead, in the face of each and every obstacle, Audie Murphy leaned in and he pressed on. He continued in the fight and Audie Murphy won. His testimony reminds us that circumstances don't create the man. They don't create the woman. They simply reveal the character that was there. This morning, what kind of character do you have? Do you have ferocious courage? Do you have a never-give-in approach to life? Or when the kitchen begins to warm up, do you toss the dishes in the sink and you walk out? What do you like? Dad, what are you like in your home? Are you engaged, leading your family? 
Not just providing for them, but are you leading your family? It's so easy for us to come and check out. I heard Matt Chandler say one time that the greatest thing that men struggle with because of the fallen nature that we have within us is passivity. And it's so true. We are by nature passive. We will give in. Adam passively yielded to the leadership of his wife in the garden when he should have been assertive. And so, dads, on this Mother's Day, Day, are you leading your family? Are you trusting in the sufficiency of Christ to lead your home, to provide for your family, and to lead them well? What are we doing in the church? What's our character like? Let's never be a people who throw in the towel, who give in, but let's be a people who always press on, believing God's Word, standing on the promises, and allowing it to flesh itself out in our life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the testimony, the witness of Nehemiah. God, I thank you that he was a champion. He was a champion. A strong man, a courageous man. And Because of what you did in him, what you did through him, he was also a victorious man. God, that doesn't mean his story didn't come with setbacks. It did, but Lord, in the end, he was a champion because he was victorious. He kept his eye on the prize. And Lord, I pray this morning that whatever we're facing, whatever we're dealing with in our lives individually, God, whatever we're facing as a church, I pray that we would be a people who always press on, who always put one foot in front of the other. God, we realize that this work isn't easy. It's not, that work is never supposed to be easy. We're living in a world that doesn't make things easy. But God, we have a, we have a, a sufficient Father who provides for us. And so bless us this morning. Give us faith, give us courage, give us tenacity, give us a ferocious, never-given attitude and approach to life. Lord, I pray for dads here that they would lead like that in their home. I pray for moms here that would lead like that in their home who would follow their husbands, pray for their husbands, and serve in your church. God, this morning, as we prepare our hearts to respond to the Word of God, There may be some who just simply need to get on their face this morning and just talk with you. For some, that may mean that they need to confess sin this morning. Lay it at the foot of the cross and trust you with it. For others, that may mean that they need to come and just ask you for for strength. That they would have eyes that would be able to see past their circumstances and see the, the faithfulness of God for them. Lord, for some this morning, that may mean that they need to put their faith and trust in Jesus and identify with you publicly through baptism. Lord, as we move into a time of response, I pray on this Mother's Day that, God, you would you'd lead us to make decisions, that we would trust in your sufficiency, that we, God, would see the subtle deception of the enemy. God, that we would be people of truth. God, as we sing this song in Christ alone, I pray that would be the cry of our heart. That our trust is in Jesus and Jesus alone. For salvation and for daily living. God bless us this morning. Bless your church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand across the room?